I know that the title, this actually was arranged uh, uh, after most of the other sessions because I think somebody dropped out. So the title is a little bit misleading. This is actually right here what I'm going to be talking about. Developing a protocol within the healthcare uh, setting to respond to victims of trafficking. Um, not going to be talking about identification. So if that'll be more on Saturday morning. That'll be a trafficking 101. This is more um, how to respond and how to be prepared for that victim of trafficking in the healthcare setting. Um, yeah, I think that's live. Well, my name is Jeff Barros. I've been involved in the anti-trafficking realm since about 2005, eight years now. Uh, mainly training healthcare professionals on how to identify and recognize victims of trafficking. And as I said, this particular session is, uh, is not geared uh, to teach you how to identify, but more how to prepare to respond. So I'm going to be assuming uh, that you've got at least some level of knowledge about trafficking and uh, uh, that you... Uh, are interested in, in going into the next step and, and looking at how to respond to that victim in the, in the healthcare field. So here are my educational objectives. Uh, first of all, at, at the conclusion, you should hopefully be able to make the necessary contacts to develop a protocol um, to respond to victims of trafficking in the healthcare setting and uh, be able to research local resources that are already engaged in the fight to end human trafficking, and then be able to uh, complete a protocol to respond to victims of trafficking in the office or clinic setting. So, uh, as I said, I'm assuming that you've got uh, a basic knowledge, but we have a small group, so I'm, I'm not opposed. If you've got questions that come up as we go along, um, please feel free to, to interrupt, and I'll try and answer those. Uh, so I'm, I'm also assuming you've received some training regarding how to identify a victim. If you haven't, I will be giving a primer, kind of 101 human trafficking, Saturday morning at 8 o'clock. And I uh, would welcome having you there. And uh, I'm also assuming that you have a desire to put into place a mechanism to help you respond to identified victims of trafficking. So let's start out by talking about why do we need a protocol? What's, why is it... Uh, important to have a protocol in place. And there are a variety of reasons. First, uh, these victims don't self-identify. Uh, so it really, part of the uh, purpose of the protocol is to help the identification process. Uh, and for a variety of reasons, they don't self-identify. They may not even realize they're victims. Uh, and I go into that a little bit more on my 101. So they're not going to come in with a T on their forehead or I'm a trafficking victim T-shirt. They're actually going to be under the radar. And so a protocol helps us to be prepared ahead of time to, to, to identify them, especially on the local level. Um, the other thing is, is that intervention it can be dangerous. It can be dangerous for the victim, patient, and potentially dangerous depending on the trafficker or the type of trafficking scenario, potentially dangerous for you and your staff. So the less prepared you are, the more likely you're to encounter some problems. So preparation ahead of time is part of the, one of the reasons is to lessen that danger to you. Um, then there's a, a lot of really sticky questions that have to be answered and dealt with through the whole response process. Uh, and one of those questions is, what do you do if they refuse intervention? Especially if that's a minor. 
And if, if you haven't worked through those questions and come up with some good solid answers, you might end up making some decisions that you regret later on. So all of that uh, helps you, uh, in, in the, you, work, you work through all of that in the process of developing the protocol. The other thing is, is that obviously we're involved with law enforcement because this is an illegal activity and uh, we need to interface with them. And they may need our input, uh, some of the evidence we collect. So having a protocol helps us be prepared to ask, answer the question, what evidence do they need? What, what are the data that they want us to collect ahead of time that will help prosecute that trafficker? Then, a lot of times when I'm giving talks uh, on, and around the country on identification of victims, uh, I always talk about the fact that don't assume that local law enforcement understands trafficking and has been trained on trafficking because the, the level of training on the local level, and I'm talking about local police or local sheriff officers, varies widely across the country. I will say that here in Louisville, um, I know that all the officers have been trained because I was involved in a, in a symposium in August here at uh, Cosair Children's Hospital and we had the police chief and, and I asked them, how many of your officers have been trained? They've all received about two to four hours of training, which is great. That's unusual. You can go to a lot of cities around the country where the average officer has no idea what trafficking is. So because that's the case, it's important to prepare ahead of time what Officer, you want to contact. Don't just assume I can call 911 and the person that's going to come to my ER or my clinic is going to understand all about trafficking. So, the best way, again, is through advanced preparation ahead of time to deal with some of these issues, and that's through the preparation of a protocol. Now, there are two basic ways that you can set up a protocol. One is you can have a designated person who begins to interface with several of these agencies one-on-one. Um, and the agencies I'm going to talk about a little bit more, but that would include, um, you know, the judicial system. Uh, it would include law enforcement, child protective services. I don't know how well you can see that. Um, but uh, through all of those different uh, agencies, you can have one person at your clinic or hospital that is the designated person that interacts, that that sets up communication with them and begins the interaction and going through the questions that I'm going to go through. So that's one approach. The advantage of that is it's a little bit easier uh, because you don't have to get a bunch of people in the room at the same time and it's easier to schedule and you can do it on your own time frame. But I think it's the less, least best approach. The one I recommend is that you try, you make initial contact with all of these agencies, but then you try to bring them together into the same room at the same time. Because these agencies need to be talking not only to you in the, in the healthcare setting, in the hospital or clinic, but they need to be talking to each other. And so that symposium can be very educational for them. It can be, uh, I think, uh, help them understand more fully what other partners are doing in terms of the, help, of the response to trafficking victims. So the ideal is, is a, to try and set up a symposium where you get everybody together in the room at the same time and you work through what's needed for the protocol. So, step one. You need a champion. Um, 
when we did this, and we actually did a symposium uh, several months ago at uh, Louisville Children's here. And the champion is a, a guy by the name of Dr. David McLario. Uh, David is a uh, emergency, pediatric emergency room ultrasonography specialist. And uh, he just de- developed a heart for this issue. And uh, he's learned about it and heard about it over several years and decided, I really want to take the next step and help my hospital prepare a way to respond. So it requires somebody that has the time, the passion for this, and a little bit of uh, authority within the hospital setting, the ability to get the uh, administration on board and the other agencies that are involved. Without a champion... nothing much is going to happen, frankly. So that's step one. Then, step two would be, let's say you're feeling drawn to this and you say, I want to help my hospital. What's the first step you ought to do? Again, I'm assuming you've gone through a trafficking 101 type of uh, workshop. Uh, The next step would be then to to research your state laws. Uh, And you really want to be able to know those laws Pretty well, because as you begin interacting with some of these other parties and, and agencies, the, the, your knowledge of the state law is going to come up. Unfortunately, there's a couple of organizations that can help you do that. This is one, and this is Shared Hope. And by the way, uh, before I forget, I have uploaded the handout of this PowerPoint onto the uh, website for the conference. So you can go and download all of these slides. You're welcome to take notes, but if you miss something, uh, it's, it's, all, it's all in the, uh, in the file that you can download. So Shared Hope is one organization that's national, that's gone around the country and evaluated. Not only have they researched the state laws, but they've evaluated the state laws in every state. And they give grades uh, A to D. And you can see the lighter the color on the map, the... Uh, uh, the better that state is doing. So uh, Kentucky is kind of middle of the road in terms of uh, shared hope. Uh, and this is uh, this last year, uh, relatively recent. But they have very detailed uh, analysis of the, of the laws done by attorneys. Uh, so you can go there and get a, a pretty good background on how Kentucky or whatever state you live in is doing in terms of anti-trafficking laws. They look at several things, criminalization of domestic minor sex trafficking, the provisions addressing the whole issue of demand, uh, how are they doing in terms of the penalty for traffickers themselves, what about facilitators like drivers, hotels, other things like that, what are the the rehabilitative provisions for uh, child victims, as well as the, the criminal justice tools for investigation protection. Those are the things that Shared Hope looks at. The other organization is Polaris Project, and they also rate states. Uh, they have a little different system, and you can see here this is their map, and their map is, uh, uh, has Ohio and Kentucky about the same, tier one. They, they give each state uh, one of four tiers. And so uh, this will also lay out the laws uh, in each state in dealing with trafficking. And I think if you take the time to go through both of these websites, Uh, you'll have a very good understanding uh, of trafficking in your state and how your state is doing and what the pros and the cons are, the weaknesses of the particular law. And, uh, of course, Polaris Project has a report on all 50 states in terms of that. So I'd recommend that you do that research first. Then you begin, after that, 
contacting and getting input from various society sectors. Uh, so who do you need to contact? Well, first is law enforcement. So if you are completely unaware, if you're in an area where you have no contacts at all in the anti-trafficking realm, and you think, where do I start? Well, here's a hotline number set up by Homeland Security, and they have a database of all of the law enforcement officials that have been trained in human trafficking and will respond to human trafficking in your area. So you can call them up and say, I live in Indianapolis, and who is the, uh, uh, the law enforcement officials that are designated for human trafficking? So you can call that number and get started. That will probably, they'll be giving you at least federal and state level law enforcement, probably not local. Okay? Then you do need to go to the local level. And if you don't have any contacts, I would, and especially if you're in a city large enough to have a vice department, I would uh, recommend contacting that vice department. Uh, it may take some time to get through because they don't know who you are. Uh, if you have some type of official role at the hospital, that would help. But just simply saying, I'm a, I'm a physician, a nurse that really is interested in this issue, eventually you'll get to a, a vice detective. What you really want to know is, you want to know their level of knowledge about trafficking. And uh, rather than asking them outright, what do you know about trafficking, you might just kind of, uh, or do you, have you been trained on trafficking, you might instead just say, can you tell me about the local situation regarding human trafficking in this particular city? And if they've been trained and are knowledgeable, they'll be able to lay out, you know, yeah, we see a certain amount of international trafficking. This is the type of international trafficking we're seeing. We're seeing in nail salons. We're seeing in restaurants. We're seeing a little bit of international sex trafficking. And we're also seeing domestic minors. You know, they'll have a general feel for what's going on. And... Uh, and then you might ask them about local trafficking cases. And then finally, you want to know, are you willing to, to participate in the process we're trying to put together uh, in terms of developing a protocol for my hospital, clinic, or whatever? And in general, the, the vice officers I've been in contact in law enforcement are very, very open to doing that, especially if they understand trafficking is going on. They welcome partners. Uh, we were fortunate. I live outside of Columbus. We're fortunate to have a young guy that's very, very uh, passionate about this issue, and he's, he's very open uh, to going to any hospital and, and helping in that process. So I would say generally you're going to get a positive response. Don't forget state. Uh, and this is uh, if you don't get a state official uh, from the Homeland Security number, uh, don't forget to, to include and at least offer a highway patrol or a state agency, BCI. Every state, obviously, the agencies are known a little differently, but Bureau of Criminal Investigation, is the commonly states have that. And again, you ask them, you know, what is your level of training at the state level? Now, in Ohio, every state law enforcement officer has been trained on trafficking. And then, again, their willingness to participate. FBI definitely needs to be included. Because any case of international trafficking, the investigation will be done by the FBI. So the problem you have here is that the FBI is spread so thin. There are only two agents in southern Ohio that had anything to do with trafficking uh, within the FBI, and they covered Columbus, Cincinnati, and Dayton. 
two agents. So obviously, <laughs> getting their involvement is difficult because they're spread so thin. But uh, they are the ones, if you've got international trafficking, that will take on the investigation because typically it becomes a federal case. So you can call the FBI and get who's the agent. It may not be in that, that particular city, like in Columbus. Our agent is actually located in Dayton. Um, so you want to get in contact with them and see if they're willing to participate in the symposium. All FBI agents have been trained on trafficking, so you don't need to worry whether they've been trained. They all have been. The, the problem, again, is the, the manpower level. And then you also need to get the uh, Homeland Security agent involved. And this is, uh, instead of ICE, it used to be Immigration Customs Enforcement. ICE has now been brought into Homeland Security. So any time an international victim is, is found, uh, Homeland Security needs to be involved because they're going to be dealing with the immigration issues and the investigation of, of what happened to get them into the country. So they need to be at the table as well. So you, and they've all been trained. All federal agents have been trained on trafficking, so you want to get their participation. So, uh, so you're, ask about law enforcement task force as well. Some cities uh, have taken the extra step and they've evolved in their uh, response to this to actually form a task force. And the task force will typically have a member of local police, local sheriff, as well as FBI and Homeland Security. And if you're fortunate enough to be in a city that has a task force in place, that's terrific. That'll be a great, great benefit. And I believe there's one here in Louisville. Um, now, what else? Then you have to go to the government, several government agencies. And one in particular is, of course, Child Protective Services because we'll be dealing with minor victims. The most common form of trafficking in the United States is, is domestic minor sex trafficking. So when we encounter victims of, of sex trafficking that are under age 18, we automatically have to involve Child Protective Services. So they need to be brought to the table. It's a little tricky because some of them have been trained on trafficking. Some have not. Um, you want to then begin asking them, uh, have your personnel been trained? And again, this varies across the country. Some have been, some haven't. <coughs> uh, as time goes on, more and more get trained, but... Uh, you want to begin investigating, especially in terms of the intake workers. Those are the ones that are, we're most interested in, that are the workers that are uh, actually initially encountering these victims. If there's a report given, uh, you need to know if the intake workers understand the issue of trafficking. Do they have, if they have been trained, do they have any relationships with any providers? In other words, is there a facility that will take care of these uh, minor victims in that area if they are fortunate enough to that? And again, their willingness to participate in the symposium if you put one together, and generally they are. Don't forget juvenile court. That's another party. A lot of these kids will have outstanding arrest warrants for truancy, perhaps drugs. Uh, they've been arrested multiple times. A lot of times they are treated as criminals rather than victims. So this is part of the educational process, is getting the courts aware of the fact that instead of a victim or instead of a criminal, they're a victim. And this is where your knowledge of the state laws comes into play. If you live in a state where uh, the law has been written in such a way that any minor found in commercial sex is automatically seen as a victim of child abuse, 
then you can tell your courts that. And you don't assume that the courts know that, especially if it's relatively new law. They may not be aware of that. So that's where you can come in and say to them, uh, are you aware of the fact that the state has passed this law and so that they are now automatically seen as a victim of abuse rather than a criminal. So they need to come to the table. And uh, are, and again, juvenile judges and magistrates are all looking out for what's best for the kids. So a lot of the ones that I've encountered are very open to being educated on, unfortunately. The other thing to, to talk to them about is, you know, are they screening for victims in juvenile detention? Because you can be sure that in juvenile detention, they are seeing these kids. And so it, it, it's a good educational time for them. Uh, True an officer is a, a good person to think about as well uh, in getting to the table. Uh, again, looking at their knowledge of trafficking, and their knowledge of state laws, and beginning to look at these kids as victims rather than as juvenile delinquents. Municipal court. I don't know how your state is set up, but Ohio... Uh, in many states, municipal court is the court that deals with adults that are arrested for prostitution. So when you're looking at victims of adult sex trafficking, you, instead of the juvenile court, you're going to be bringing in the municipal court or whatever court it is in your city that deals with misdemeanors because in the vast majority of cities, prostitution is a misdemeanor, not a federal, not a... Uh, um, felony. So you find out what court is dealing with the misdemeanors in your area. And again, in Ohio, it's municipal courts. And then talk to them about their awareness of trafficking. Do they understand that a certain percentage of the women that are being brought in and arrested for prostitution are actually, if you look closely, uh, victims could be defined as victims of trafficking. We were fortunate in Columbus to have a judge that uh, got awakened to this issue a number of years ago and actually formed a special court. And some of that is happening more and more around the country. Uh, he actually has formed a, sp- a special, what he calls the catch court. And it, it basically treats these women as victims rather than as criminals and gets them tr- through drug therapy and away from the abusive situation that's keeping them uh, uh, under their control, under the control of the trafficker. The next group is then who is providing services for these victims. And this is a major weakness in our society. There's a big, big uh, loophole here, whereas you go to the vast majority of cities around the country, there aren't specialized uh, services available, uh, especially for minor victims. I'm part of an organization called Abolition International. We have the Abolition International Shelter Association. We have about 30 members here in the United States So, uh, obviously, less than one member per state. But you want to research uh, in your particular city who is is got and providing services for these victims. Services like housing, food, uh, translation, case management, rehabilitation, counseling. And uh, these people are a huge resource uh, for you in the healthcare profession because... Number one, they'll be able to provide for these, uh, these victims after they leave the healthcare setting. But number two, because they're interacting with these victims, they have a lot of knowledge about the local trafficking situation that they can uh, have input at your symposium. 
Now, let's say you don't know. I am, you're clueless about anybody in your area. Here's a hotline number you can call. Polaris Project. The other thing they do besides evaluate state laws is they uh, run a, a database. Uh, it's a hotline number for victims all across the country. About 20% of the calls are informational. And it's 888-3737-888. You call that number and you ask, I live in X city. What's the, the contact information of the closest organization to me working with victims of trafficking? And you can start from there and contact them. The other thing you can do is go to this website. Um, this is the Health and Human Services website. It's part of the Rescue and Restore Project. It was started in about 2003 where the federal government uh, went to major cities across the country where trafficking was a huge problem and tried to set up rescue and restore coalitions. And there's a list on the website of coalitions that might be in your area. And uh, again, that, that's available on the handout if you want to download it. And, uh, or you can just put in rescueandrestore.com. Uh, It'll take you to the website and you can look in your particular state and see what city has might have a, a rescue, rescue and restore coalition. And those people, that's really a, a coalition of organizations that are focused on helping victims of trafficking. Good group to connect with. So you want to look at people that may be doing outreach. There are a lot of service organizations. It's all they do. They do outreach, but they're coming into contact with these victims. So again, they have a lot of information on the type of trafficking that may be going on. You want to look at housing providers, restorative care providers, and other service providers. Now, what do you want to get from them? You want to ask, you want to have in your response system at the back at the clinic and hospital level, even at the office level, you want to know who exactly are you serving. If you've got people in your area that are serving, they're typically serving only one kind of victim. They're typically either they're serving adult victims of sex trafficking or adult victims of labor trafficking or minor victims. Typically, they're not serving both. So you want to get down, all right, what victim are you serving? So that you know when you get that victim, you need to call somebody that's going to get, provide housing for them, who, who they are, uh, who it is you need to call. What are the services? Is it housing? Is it full restorative care? Uh, is it just outreach? Well, they maybe help connect that person and put them in a hotel, a variety of, of services that might be out there. What are their criteria for admission to their organization? Do they need any funding uh, for that? And uh, their ability to participate in your symposium as well. And again, they're very valuable uh, people to have at the table. Finally, if, especially if you're working at the hospital level, you need to have buy-in from the hospital. You need hospital administration. You need buy-in. You need buy-in from the medical staff, specifically uh, certain uh, specialties, OBGYN, pediatrics, family medicine, orthopedics, and most importantly, emergency room. So the, the whole emergency department needs to be have a buy-in in terms of this whole issue. Nursing as well, social services, and hospital security. So it helps if you've got some official role at the hospital to try and get all of these people at the table for this uh, protocol. Some other participants to think about. Uh, local schools. Uh, 
typically once these kids are fully into the trafficking scenario, they're not in school, but sometimes they can be in and out as they just gradually move into the trafficking scenario. So getting the school involved might be a a helpful preventative measure. Uh, And then a lot of, especially larger churches, are good... uh, good partners to be involved. They have a lot of resources, as you know, especially if they're beginning to have a passion on dealing with the problem of trafficking in your city. So, that's all your partners. Now, what is it that's going to be the, the, the mandatory elements of a good protocol? What is it you need to have in place? And I like to think of it in terms, I'm a linear, logical person, and uh, uh, so I'm thinking of it as the, through the process of possibly encountering this victim. The first thing you want to do is you want to develop a list of local identifiers. And uh, because trafficking is very different in Florida than in state of Washington, than in New York City, than in Indianapolis, Indiana. Very different types of trafficking going on. So you can't take a general list. I mean, you can begin with a general list of identifiers, but you'll be better off if you can really hone down that list uh, to what's happening in your city. And that's where the input from law enforcement and others really helps. So you want to know about the types of international trafficking that are going on. In other words, if you get from law enforcement that that there's a lot of trafficking going on in the international restaurants in your area, then you're going to be looking more for people that that tell you, yeah, I'm a cook in this this Indian restaurant, or I'm a dishwasher. Uh, They can give you the the names of the local pimps and pimp networks. If If they're really on top of this, they'll have that information. And then even to the point where they can give you the names of those traffickers that may be tattooed onto the patients. Because one of the identifiers that I talk about when I give a 101 on trafficking is that especially domestic traffickers, they will tattoo their street name onto the upper back or neck of their victim. Well, if you've got vice officers that are in communication with you, and that's what was great here in Louisville, the vice officers knew. I, yeah, he said, I know four or five traffickers that are in the city right now. And he said, all, he, they're all tattooing their names on their victims. So I said to, at this symposium we had at Louisville Children's, I said, can you communicate the names of these traffickers to the people in the ER? Oh, yeah, I can do that. So not only are you looking for a tattoo, you're looking for a tattoo with a specific name that's geared right to your area. So that's huge help. Um, so you're looking at cases of local trafficking and what are the trends in trafficking in that particular area. So this is where law enforcement comes in and they can give you that information as well as the local service providers. So what you want to do then is, is get their input and again back to you can either do it individually or in the best scenario is when you've got this symposium you get their input on, on the, as much of a description on local trafficking as you can uh, from both service providers and law enforcement to put together this list. So once you've got the list, then you need to decide how you're going to disseminate it, where are you going to put it in the hospital, in the clinic. Uh, you don't want to post it, obviously, in the waiting rooms. 
because you don't want traffickers to see that. But where are you going to post it so that your uh, your intake workers are seeing it? Um, and then how are you going to train? This is a, a process that you work through. How are you going to train your intake personnel, all of the personnel on these local identifiers? And how are you going to update it? Because traffickers move. So you want to make sure you're getting uh, updated information from both law enforcement as well as these um, local service providers on an ongoing basis. So the result is that you'll end up with an accurate list of local identifiers that are posted and trained to your office, clinic, and hospital staff. Then let's move through this, and then we think, all right, I have a potential victim identified. They match the local identifiers. What do I do next? How do I, how do I set up my protocol? Well, as I talk about, you have to separate the patient, potential victim, from the trafficker. And we're fortunate in healthcare. There are several ways that we can do that. But I think it's important to set up a standardized way in that office, clinic, or hospital that you're going to separate. In other words, you want to, who's going to be doing the separating? Is it going to be the physician? Is it going to be the nurse? Whoever. You assign a, a specific person to do the separation. What is it you're going to tell the patient and the tr- potential trafficker that they need to wait outside? You might say, you could, you could start out with, we're, we're doing a pelvic exam. It's our policy. We never have family members in. And, and let me make the point that even though you know, for whatever reason, you know this is a close family member that should not make any difference at all in terms of separating. Because, I'm going to show on Saturday morning, almost one-third of traffickers are immediate family members, such as mother, father, uncle, aunt, husbands. So you may have, for instance, be at a, at a children's hospital or have a, have a pediatric patient, and you know this is the mother. And you think, at first, well, they can't be a trafficker. Wrong. 30% of traffickers are immediate family members. So regardless, if you're beginning to see these identifiers, you get them separated from that patient. So you can also talk about, we're going to take them back for an x-ray, and you need to stay here unless you want to be exposed to radiation. Whatever you do, you develop what you're going to say and who's going to do this separation. Then you have to address the issue, what do you do if that trafficker really says, I'm not leaving? Do you continue to push or do you let them in? And that's, that's a tough decision. My general response is to continue to push because the more they're refusing to leave, the more likely they are a true trafficker. But in certain situations, if you're dealing in general, international traffickers are more dangerous than domestic traffickers. So you may want to talk with law enforcement and and they may tell you, you know what, we've got a pretty dangerous criminal network here and if they're, they're getting threatening, you let them do what they need to do. Just get information and report it later. Because the one theme, and I'll talk about this uh, over and over, as healthcare professionals, we are mandated reporters. We are not mandated to intervene. So, you, you, you know, in general, I'd say push, but this is something that ought to be looked at at the local level, and you want to get consultation with your staff and with local law enforcement on, on how, how much to push. 
So the result is you're going to have a separation policy that will answer these questions that are incorporated into your protocol and trained to the staff. And then once you get them separated, you have to have an interviewer. And this interviewer is a very special person. They need to be trained to understand what is human trafficking. They need to be trained on... on, uh, what trauma does to a person, how it impacts their ability to answer questions. Uh, I recommend that you have that person. They ought to be on site. You don't want to have to separate them and then pick up the phone and have to call this person and take 20 minutes to come in. That's not going to work. They need to be on site. And if you're talking about a hospital, they need to be somebody available 24 hours a day on site. So you're going to have to have different people on different shifts. But... The protocol ought to lay out who that that interviewer is going to be. And uh, then they have to have access to interpreters if you're dealing with an international victim. So you need to think about how to make contact with those interviewers if needed ahead of time. I think the best people that really work well as interviewers are social workers, are sane or safe nurses. Are you familiar with terminology sane and safe nurses? SANE stands for Sexual Assault Nurse Examiner. SAFE is Sexual Assault Forensic Examiner. So they've been trained in sexual assault and, uh, and understand trauma. Uh, I think as long as they've been trained on trafficking and the significant differences between sexual assault and trafficking, uh, they make good uh, interviewers. You might be lucky enough if you've got a, 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 a good organization that's doing outreach that they may, you know, maybe a short distance away, this is where you might make an exception, they're not on site, that they might come in quickly, uh, especially uh, if you're dealing with a minor, and and do the interview for you. So, again, what's their training? They need to understand how to interview victims, how to develop trust, effects of trauma, what trauma bonding is, what is human trafficking, what are the identifiers, the screening questions that we ask that I talk about in the Trafficking 101. They need to know how to make the decision, is this a victim of trafficking truly or probably a high probability of of trafficking or not? Um, They need to understand what keeps them from self-disclosing. They need to work through the confidentiality and HIPAA policies of that office, clinic, or hospital. Um, And then, as I mentioned, how to include translators. And then, when to intervene and not to intervene. And we'll talk about that in a little bit more. But, but that's going to be laid out in your protocol. So that interviewer should know all of that. So then, who makes that decision? Who the interviewer is? That's the hospital staff, the clinic staff, or the office staff. They make that decision. So the result then, you have interviewers designated and trained, ready to go. Now, let's say the interviewer concludes, this patient is likely a victim of trafficking. What do you do next? Uh, Now is when you begin to think, all right, what additional data do we need to collect? And by this time, the patient has been in the healthcare setting for some period of time. They've gone through the initial screening. They've probably encountered the healthcare professional who began to suspect trafficking is going on. They've now been interviewed by this specially trained interviewer. Um, They've developed a, a rapport and trust, hopefully, with that interviewer. Uh, what additional data are they going to be able to open up to you? You want to get all the demographic data you can, absolutely everything. Any known addresses, not just their home addresses, any other addresses where they've been kept, been at, 
any phone numbers they, they might know of, email addresses, any contact information. You start to ask then about, are there any other women or girls like you? How many are we dealing with? Uh, in larger cities, domestic traffickers typically have a stable of three to five girls or women. So you may be just able to reach out and get one, and they may say, well, there's two other girls that are there. So you want to find out about other victims? Um, ask them about potential danger to them and to the staff. What, if, what has this guy done to you or the other girls that you've been with? Um, I've talked to girls who have actually never not witnessed so much a murder, but realized that their trafficker killed one of the girls. So that's, that's a possibility you've got to be aware of. And then what other data does law enforcement want you to get? This is a place where you get input from them once you've reached the decision that they probably are a victim. Then other medical information. You know, a lot of times, we all know in the healthcare setting that a lot of this very intimate information is not going to come out initially, especially if they've been in commercial sex. They're not going to tell you how many partners they've been with. But once they've been through and established this trust relationship with the interviewers, and the interviewer understands, okay, so you've been forced into prostitution, yeah, then you can start asking the questions again. Well, how many partners have you had? This is important for us to know. So now they'll begin to reveal some of this additional information, whereas before they wouldn't. So you want to know how many partners they've had in the last two weeks. When was the date and time uh, of the last sexual contact? Any of their partners have a discharge that they need to be aware of? Um, that they think they may have had a sexually transmitted disease? Any trauma? Any new GYN symptoms? So you kind of go back through a lot of the questions that may have already been asked, but maybe they were afraid to really give a true answer. So don't forget that they're now going to be more likely to reveal that. What's the possibility of pregnancy and other health concerns or problems that they might have? So then, you've got this probable victim in your healthcare setting. What do you do? Now, this is where you have to think through, do we intervene or not? And again, we are mandated inter- uh, reporters, not mandated interveners. And we have to remember that because we're, we're not set up generally in healthcare to intervene. But I know that we as healthcare professionals want to help people, so it's a natural response that want to grab this person and get them out of this ugly situation. Um, But we have to think through that. So, you want to have clear guidelines for intervention. And those guidelines depend on these factors. What is your ability to establish security? Obviously, it's going to be very different in the hospital setting than in an office setting. But even in some hospitals, you may not be able to establish security. What's the trafficking scenario? Are you dealing with domestic trafficking versus international trafficking? International trafficking, in general, deals with organized crime. Very evil, mean people. Are you capable of dealing with that situation? Versus domestic minor, in general, the the domestic traffickers are big bullies. But there is a difference. So you have to work through that. What is the danger to the patient? What's the danger uh, from the trafficker to the staff? We'll talk a little bit about the desire of the patient and the victim. So all of these factors need to be brought into place and asked ahead of time so you gather input from, again, law enforcement and local trafficking organizations to work through that. And so there will be some times when you'll decide, yes, 
We want to intervene if X, Y, and Z, if we're dealing with a domestic trafficker and uh, it's a particular trafficker and we've got somebody who really wants help, yes, we'll intervene. But you might decide if we're dealing with international trafficking, law enforcement says don't try and mess with them. Let them go out the door and let us follow up with them. So you'll have definite guidelines set up when to intervene. Then, let's say you have the capability that the the patient victim meets the criteria for intervention, you need to ask their permission to intervene. Why? Because if you fail, they're going to suffer the consequences and maybe their family. So you need to get their, their, um, their permission. What if they refuse? That's a question you have to work through. In terms of my input, uh, if they're an adult, you have to respect that decision if they're over age 18. You really, just like we do with intimate partner violence, we don't grab a hold of them and force them into a, a, a facility. You let them go out the door. But you gather as much information as you can. You even look at trying to get the license plate of the vehicle. Have somebody from the clinic, office, or hospital kind of surreptitiously follow them out to their car, write down the license plate, allow them to leave, and then you report it to law enforcement. Now, what if the victim is an adult parent of a minor patient? gets a little tricky. I think, again, you have to respect their decision if the minor is not in immediate danger. Again, you report, but we don't intervene. And what if they're a minor patient? What if they're 15 years old and you're pretty well convinced they're in a sex trafficking scenario uh, being controlled by uh, this boyfriend slash trafficker pimp? Um, I was up in Kentucky, or not in Kentucky, I was up in Connecticut and helping this hospital put together a protocol in Hartford. And then apparently in, in Connecticut, they have a state law that healthcare can jump in and take control of a minor for 96 hours, no questions asked. And so their immediate response to this is, well, we think somebody's a trafficking victim. We're going we're gonna to put them away for 96 hours. And I said, well, okay. What are you going to do with them when the 96 hours is over? And they said, well, uh, I don't know. I said, if they don't want help, what have you done? You have alienated them from the healthcare system then and put them into potential danger. So they need to think through uh, whether or not to, to jump in, again, even with a minor. And again, the decision depends on your ability to protect that minor, what services you have available, What's the age of the minor, the physical condition of the minor? I think that has input. Uh, what's known about the trafficker, the ability to follow up later, and the ability of law enforcement to follow up. And if you've got good, solid law enforcement and you know they're going to follow up later, uh, I'd be less likely to intervene against the will of a minor. This is where you have to bring in Child Protective Services as well. So it is very difficult to help a minor or an adult if they don't want help. As hard as it is for us in healthcare to recognize that, you've got a 15-year-old who doesn't want your help, it's very difficult to help them as much as we might try. And the other thing we're finding, there is a trend nationally where the trafficker is having children with these minors for the purpose of controlling them, and so then you've got another party involved, and that's why it's sometimes, a lot of times, better to let law enforcement follow up. So get additional input from CPS, police, FBI, uh, juvenile justice, homeland security on that uh, on that issue. 
and then make some decisions and write them down into the protocol. Um, then establishing security. And let's see, what have I got? 450. I've got a few more minutes. I've got to move a little quicker. You want to establish security. This is assuming that the patient is requesting an intervention. They meet the criteria for intervention. You establish security both internally and externally. Um, and uh, you do that through hospital security. Uh, they need to be trained on trafficking. They need to understand what they're being called into ahead of time. You don't want to have them coming in blind into a situation that's, that's potentially dangerous and they have no idea about trafficking. So they need to be involved in the development of the protocol as well as trained to that. And then, of course, you're getting your, your police. You, know, you want to know from them. How do you want us to notify you once we have this patient that's identified as a victim of trafficking and is requesting intervention? What's the number to be called and what other actions to be taken? Then you have to think of other, other um, notification protocols. Again, if it's a minor, how do you notify Child Protective Services? How do you notify Juvenile Justice System if it's a minor that has an arrest warrant out? If it's an international, how do you notify FBI? How do you notify Homeland Security? How do you notify the local trafficking partners? All of those things need to be written down in the protocol. The last thing that's a little tricky is the forensic examination. And this is, uh, I'm a little resistant a lot of times because a lot of times sane and safe nurses get involved in this and they've been trained on sexual assault and it's been hammered into them the importance of a forensic examination. So that's really all they're thinking is a forensic examination. And the reality is that in a sex trafficking scenario, forensic examination is not nearly as critical. And, and quickly, here's some of the reasons. And the, the major reason is that when you're, when you're going after the major perpetrator of a sexual assault, the evidence is the assault itself. And it's found you know, through the collection of forensic uh, data. But when you're going in sex trafficking, the major perpetrator is the, is the trafficker themselves. And you don't convict on the basis of that forensic evidence. In fact, that trafficker may not have had sex with this girl for the, a number of weeks, and there may have been 30 sexual partners in the interim. So, um, and then what you're collecting then is evidence against a minor perpetrator, the John, not the major perpetrator. So the, the, uh, the, the ER and sane and safe nurses need to understand the significant differences between sexual assault and sex trafficking. So a good protocol will then answer the questions, when do you want to involve a sane or safe nurse, uh, specifically for the purpose of a forensic exam, and when to collect and how much forensics to collect. So again, you get back to the two different approaches, individually going out to these various agencies, getting the feedback, and developing the protocol or bringing them all together into a symposium, which is what I recommend. So in summary, when you get done, you'll have a list of local indicators, clear separation protocol, a designated interviewer that's trained on the protocol, able to contact interviewers. They know the delineated additional data to collect uh, the guidelines regarding intervention, guidelines for a minor refusing intervention, clear reporting mechanisms to all the various agencies that need to be contacted, and the training of staff and personnel on that protocol. That should be also included. And then guidelines for updating that protocol. So <clears throat> I think I've got a couple minutes left. I'll turn on the lights if anybody has any questions.
timelines you've seen for appropriate uh, time to expect for this whole process to take place? Actually, the first hospital I've done this with is uh, with Children's here in, uh, in Louisville, and it's the first hospital I know nationally that's ever done it. Um, I thought Mass General had a protocol in place until I talked to one of the people out there a month ago, and they don't have a protocol. Uh, so I know that uh, Louisville Children's has got a few things that they haven't cleared up. Last I knew the forensics uh, question and when and when not to intervene with a minor. But other than that, they had a proto- that, the rest of the protocol in place basically at the end of August. But so a lot of it really, the, the timeline depends on how much people are interested in moving forward. I think you could, get a, you could get a good solid protocol in place within a period of two to three months if you've got everybody motivated. That's the key. Yes? Yeah, good question. You would then want to monitor and say, all right, the number of victims that are encountered. You want to look at, uh, in terms of your identifiers, what's the percentage of people that the interviewer comes into contact that are truly victims of trafficking? And then you want to look at the percentage of successful interventions. And so modify, you know, if you're not doing a very good job of identifying and you're getting them over-identified and the interviewers, you know, 10% of the people they're interviewing are really victims of trafficking, you've probably got too broad uh, local identifiers. Yeah. I have no idea. I, 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 I wouldn't even. What I can do is look at it uh, through another piece, couple pieces of data. First of all, the estimate of the number of child victims we have is at a minimum 100,000. And then we're coming up with data that between 50 and 88% of victims of trafficking are encountering a healthcare professional while being trafficked. Um, so that means that a majority of that 100,000 are encountering victims of trafficking. Um, if we get down to the local level of a city the size of Louisville, we're probably talking at any one time between 50 and 75 victims in Louisville or the surrounding areas. 50% of those are uh, at least are going through health care. That's about the closest I can come with, with the number. I'd love to get that data. Yeah. Sure. There's, there's some potential, probably with, with um, domestic minors, the problem is going to be the fact that they're trauma-bonded and they don't see themselves as a victim. Um, but, but doing some education over television 
to that effect over time, repetitive exposure to that might open their eyes a little bit to the fact that, wait a minute, I, I am a victim. Um, they do see a little bit of television early in the evening, uh, but after 10 o'clock they're out working. So it would be you know, late afternoon, early evening uh, that it would have to be, be run. Yeah, they have you know it, it varies in the situation, but they have they have downtime and some freedom uh, within the the pimp's home uh, until they have to go out and, and work. Do you have any um, specific sources or resources for um, honing in on things or safes and giving them um, that specialized training to differentiate between sexual assault and sexual trafficking? I think your question has two parts. I mean, the first part is there, there are ways to get in contact because they're local now. There are local um, societies of sane and safe nurses. In fact, we have one in Ohio. I can't remember the acronym, but, uh, but th- those are forming all around this, the, the, uh, the country. So they're easy to get into those groups or you go into a larger ER and they typically will have sane and safe nurses that come in. The second part is, is, is there any specialized training for them? I've done a little bit. Uh, I did one one educational thing a couple of years ago for sane nurses in Ohio, but uh, I've really never seen or heard of anything where they they get ready to be an interviewer and understand the differences. And I think this is an evolving issue. This is an issue that there's a lot of work that needs to be done, and I think that would be a great training to see put at one of their meetings because they're like any other specialized society there a lot of them have annual meetings and they address various issues yeah yeah I think most of it is a lack of awareness uh, of either the existence or the extent of trafficking um, people still don't understand how prominent it is and so um, once hospital administrators learn of the horrific nature of it and learn that it's all around them, then generally they're very open to doing this. But it's getting them to that level of awareness. And it just takes time. I mean, the, the, the 70s was the issue, uh, the, the issue of the decade was child abuse. Why did it take until the 1970s for us to deal with child abuse? Because we really didn't at all. And then it was the 80s to the 90s that we dealt with intimate partner violence. I mean, it's been around since the beginning of time. Uh, and here we are, 2010, and finally dealing with human trafficking. Take some time, took that decade, and I think with time as the ball gets rolling, I think more and more hospitals will find out. I mean, every hospital now of any size has a protocol on how to deal with child abuse. I mean, if they're seeing pediatric patients and they don't, they'd be ashamed of themselves. And I think five, ten years down the road, we'll get to that same place with domestic tra- or with uh, trafficking. It's going to take that time. All right. Well, thank you, everybody. Appreciate it. I'll be up here for a few minutes if you have any other questions.